I'm Caleb Brown, and I'd like to take this small bit of time to ask you to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast by becoming a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and give a donation in any amount to support our work. If you support us with $1,000 or more before the end of the year, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate a friend or loved one to receive that benefit. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you for supporting Cato and the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 11th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The current president has called Joe Biden the most boring human being I've ever seen. So will we get a presidency to match? Maybe so and maybe not. Joe Biden will enter the White House under significant pressure to do way more than just undo the last four years of executive action. Cato's Gene Healy, author of The Cult of the Presidency, details why Biden-Harris may be anything but boring. Just before the election, Donald Trump uh, said, uh, apparently as a threat, that if uh, Joe Biden were elected president, nobody would be interested in politics anymore. Um, and that sounds pretty good. Uh, so is he right about Biden-Harris and the fact that things might end up being boring again? Yeah, it, it did sound towards the end like he was trying to almost make the case for his opponent. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us would enjoy being bored by politics. And, well, uh, I don't think he's right about that. I think it's true that Joe Biden's Twitter feed is going to be a lot more boring than Donald Trump's Twitter feed. I started thinking about this today and I went over to at Joe Biden and realized that I hadn't been following the president-elect, apparently never felt the need to. Today, he was wishing people a happy Hanukkah. It's, uh, you know, the sort of normal, bland, reassuring, anodyne stuff that you used to get with the first Twitter president, uh, uh, Barack Obama. Um, So I, I think we can expect a change in tone. Uh, particularly over social media, and that's nice, but it it doesn't change the fun the fundamentals. Uh, the The fundamental fact is that uh, Joe Biden comes into office with uh, all the powers that Donald Trump came into office with, and when the president is powerful enough to say, "Forgive your student loans, rewrite your health insurance policy." or start a war with our, with Iran, the presidency is always something that we're going to be fighting about, often bitterly. The presidency has become so powerful that we kind of have to fight about it. The stakes are just too high for us to be ever permanently bored by it, however much we, we might like to be. You mentioned student loans. Biden said that he could, as president, cut 10K off of everybody's student loan debts just with the powers of the presidency. Uh, One, can he do that? And there are other people urging him to spend ever more. Yeah. uh, So there have been reports that uh, Chuck Schumer and Liz Warren, among others, are pushing uh, Joe Biden to cancel up to $50,000 per person in, in student debt. 
up to uh, $1.5 trillion total in debt just with the stroke of a pen. Can he do that? I mean, there's a question of, is that what the uh, the law actually says? And the question of, could he, if he decided to go this route, get away with it? Like a lot of big presidential power moves, there's a, a, a statutory peg that they can try to hang this on. Uh, there's a there's something called compromise and settlement authority by which the education secretary has the the power to modify federal student loans. And this has been done on a limited basis in the past. But it was supposed to be a discretionary authority so that the education department could settle hard to collect debts and grant relief in, in, in certain cases. It was never supposed to be this power where the, you know, the king gets to declare a jubilee and just uh, convert a loan program into a, a trillion dollar plus federal giveaway. Um, now, whether he can get away with it is, if he tries it, is something that the courts will uh, presumably work out. Uh, although one problem is that most of the debt that uh, is in line to be forgiven is actually held by the federal government. So there might be difficulty for someone to get standing to shoot, to sue to show that they're particularly harmed by the by this move. Um, but I think it's fairly clear that nobody who voted for this authority in Congress thought that uh, they were granting the uh, the president this broad power to convert a loan program into a, a, a comprehensive giveaway. Georgia will be having a two. U.S. Senate runoffs in early January, um, and Joe Biden may face a Republican Senate. That is, if the the people who are the Republicans who have threatened to boycott uh, that election don't prevail. Uh, so, what what might that mean for uh, Joe Biden as president trying to legislate himself without Congress as? you know, in the, in the later years of the Obama administration, he pledged to do. Right. Uh, well, there are always enormous pressures on anyone who's president to, to show that they're getting big things done and divided government, uh, particularly in an era as polarized as ours is, makes it difficult to get things done through the conventional constitutional legislative method that uh, all of us Gen Xers learned about in Schoolhouse Rock. And that, as you point out with the, with Obama, that's when pe- presidents tend to stretch their authority uh, to just use the power of the pen and the phone. That's exactly what happened in Obama's second term. Uh, if you remember, he initially uh, discla- disclaimed uh, any authority to just rewrite immigration law on his own. He said, uh, that's just not the way our constitution works. And then uh, in a matter of some months, I think less than a year, he decided, well, it actually does work that way, or I'm going to pretend it does. When he started through the DACA and DAPA uh, directives, uh, implementing basically large parts of what would have been the DREAM Act if it had passed uh, just by the power of the pen. Uh, I don't think there's uh, any reason to believe if we are in a situation of divided government that the pressures are going to be any different and the temptation is going to be any less. Uh, In fact, I think there's going to be 
enormous pressure from the left uh, to do big, bold things by executive order. Uh, there's uh, David Roberts writing in Vox. Uh, he wrote a piece titled Joe Biden should do everything at once. He should run a blitz and blast right through legislative gridlock. He said there's no shortage of ways for Biden to deploy the powers of the presidency, and he should maximize every one of them. Uh, the American Prospect magazine has been running a series for what they call a day one agenda for unilateral action. Uh, they've identified uh, 277 policies that Biden doesn't have to ask permission for. Uh, they even came up with, a, one of their writers came up with a, a statutory excuse uh, by which Joe Biden could use the COVID-19 pandemic uh, to try to, to ram through Medicare for all, all by himself. So while most of what Joe Biden has said on the campaign trail and uh, most of what he's actually pledged to do in, say, the first 100 days just involves uh, reversing Donald Trump's executive orders, undoing the travel slash Muslim ban, uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, ramping up some environmental regulations where uh, where President Trump weakened them. Most of what he's promised to do, what he's actually pledged to do, involves uh, reversing what Trump did unilaterally. And while we, uh, I think, as libertarians are going to disagree with much or all of that on policy grounds, um, there's no real constitutional objection to uh, somebody coming in and unilaterally undoing what the previous president has done using the same means. But I think the pressures on Biden, if he's in a deadlocked situation, the pressures to strike out on his own and really stretch executive authority are going to be enormous. And I, I think that's something we're going to have to watch very closely. It sounds like at least those who are dedicated members in good standing on the left, that they don't have a problem with massive executive power and presidents who are wi willing to take advantage of it. They just have a problem with presidents who do those things who are uh, on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of that going around. A lot of the folks that, uh, are pushing a day one agenda and calling for an executive order blitz are people who spent the last four years warning that we we're on the brink of a fascist dictatorship. Uh, so there's a lot of hypocrisy there, but there's, there's always a lot of hypocrisy in Washington. I think uh, it's more to the point to, to point out the, how myopic this is. Do we want to do this every four to eight years, continue to make the presidency uh, a winner-take-all proposition where uh, vast areas of American life and law are just determined by who happens to win uh, a presidential election. Um, it's no way to run a country. And part of the problem is that we've, we've acceded to this situation where the president effectively runs the country. And we need to start doing something about that. I, I've got to imagine that for a plurality of Americans, uh, reigning in a whole lot of the powers of the presidency would be a good thing. You just need to have a president who 
once installed in the office, uh, does not give in to the lure of the ring uh, and is willing to sign off on some of that stuff. Yes, and that is almost an, almost impossible to get. You you don't tend to the people who are willing to do what it takes uh, to the unpleasant labor of uh, what it takes to become president are usually not the sort. It's a self selecting process where you don't tend to get the kind of people who are who are going to show up and say, "Well, now that I got here, uh, I'd like to have a lot less power," and. So I, I think this is something, uh, real executive power reform is something that has to be forced from the outside. The last real period that we had of a congressional resurgence and relimitations on executive power was in the post-Watergate era. Uh, and uh, well, the Watergate and post-Watergate era. And much of that, uh, particularly when Nixon was still president, had to be forced on him. Uh, the war powers resolution had to be passed over Nixon's veto. It's uh, You can't count on uh, the person who becomes president uh, getting really excited about reducing th- their own powers. But, I mean, I think if we learned anything over the last few years, uh, it's something we should have learned a long time ago, which is that uh, as Madison said, enlightened statesmen are not always going to be at the helm. You, you should imagine when you're thinking about the powers that you allow uh, any one president to have, you should imagine somebody that you really can't trust uh, and really uh, worry about having those powers. Um, I would hate to see us uh, lose this opportunity uh, to just, uh, you know, let uh, the blue team run wild with executive power until the next time the red team runs wild and, and uh, you know, comes in and, and gets to run wild with executive power. Uh, one of the reasons that Alexander Hamilton uh, argued for energy in the executive was that it was supposed to lead to the steady administration of the laws. And uh, it leads to anything but when every four to eight years, major initiatives and major decisions uh, that affect when, when the president is effectively making law, it leads to anything but steady administration of the laws and rule of law. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.